Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark LaLiberty, and joining me today is... Corey the Sassy Cynic Knockriner. Yep, just like every other day, basically. <laughs> on today's episode, though, we're going to be giving you an update on the latest uh, from Kaseya. We'll jump into a memorandum released by the Biden administration on protecting infrastructure control systems. And then we will have a nice long chat about why you should not trust anyone in your office. And with that, let's go ahead and get started. Industrial infrastructure control systems. Same thing. (laughs) So let's start today with an update from our favorite story over the last three weeks, it feels like. Um, On last Monday... Kaseya posted another update to their ongoing saga, stating that the decryption tool they had acquired has proven to be 100% effective at decrypting files uh, that were fully encrypted during the attack. But more importantly, they called out suggestions that their continued silence on whether they paid the ransom may encourage additional ransomware attacks and stated, quote, We are confirming in no uncertain terms that Kaseya did not pay the ransom either directly or indirectly through a third party to obtain the decryptor. So the original statement said they'd obtained the decryptor through a trusted third party. Uh, We surmised that that meant, oh, they paid the ransom through a cyber insurance provider and got the decryptor that way Mm because that sounded logical. I think we talked about a chance that law enforcement might have done something too, but... We were definitely leaning towards maybe they paid. Exactly. But they flat out said, no, we did not. And they didn't say exactly how they got to the cryptor. We still know it's through a trusted third party, which basically means it comes down to like a few options at this point. Like it could still be, you know, maybe the FBI managed to get a hold of a server where the decryptor was stored and got that and provided it to them. Uh, Could be maybe they partnered with the firm to hack back and steal it. Or it could be that they just straight up were able to crack it and they found some firm able to crack it. Um, They've noted that they've been working with an organization called MCSoft. Who, by the way, says they can sometimes crack ransomware. Yeah, exactly. They list one of their um, tools or abilities as ransomware decryption. They say that sometimes they're able to reverse engineer it, look for uh, mistakes in the encryption code and crack it. As a possibility, but I feel like, you know, our evil isn't exactly a small ransomware developer. They're pretty established. They've been around for a while. You would think that they, you know, by now have their encryption down pretty well in their tool. So, I mean, uh, one of the big things that CryptoLocker changed long ago was ransomware not relying on homegrown encryption and rather just using off-the-shelf AES, et cetera, et cetera, which should still be relatively uncrackable, but it's all in the implementation details. Just because you use a very great encryption algorithm doesn't mean they made a mistake somewhere else that gets to that encryption. So it's certainly possible. I think it's very interesting that they they say, in the articles I've read, they, they say a the third party who they don't name, but later on they specifically mentioned MCSoft as having confirmed it works. So it could be if they actually worked with MCSoft. Yeah, and you mentioned like it could be a mistake elsewhere. So one of the kind of interesting things about our evils ransomware is that they don't 
actually transmit the private keys, the encryption keys, uh, back up to the cloud. Like there is no once the ransom start ransomware starts running, there's no command and control connection that goes back to upload the keys. Instead, all the encryption keys are actually saved locally on the computer. Um, and I misspoke; it's not a private key. It's a so they use AES encryption, so it's a symmetric key for each individual file. And the way the ransomware works is it comes packaged with two public keys on it. There's a basically a campaign key uh, for whatever the specific campaign is. So in this case, we could say Kaseya. And then there's a global kind of master key that our evil uh, the developers maintain. And they use both of those public keys then to individually encrypt the symmetric key used for each file and kind of append it to the file. So what that means is as a part of that ransom note that you get, um, that is how they actually get the private key from you. So they give you instructions to basically copy and paste the public key encrypted uh, encryption key into their kind of form. And then from there, they can use their copy of the private key to decrypt it and give you back that encryption key and whatever their encryptor decryptor application is. I thought that was kind of interesting. Like it doesn't transmit, it's all stored locally. So maybe there's a weakness in that implementation. Maybe somewhere down the line, someone got a hold of one of these private keys, like the master decryption key that uh, our evil maintains. Like there are some possibilities there for sure. And like fueling some of that, uh, we mentioned uh, that most of their infrastructure actually went down two or three weeks ago or so now. Which is another kind of interesting thing when you think about it, like their website was hosted on the dark web. And we've talked about Tor before. We had an episode way back in like the first year of this podcast where we went pretty heavily into how the dark web works. And if you remember that far back, not only does uh, the Tor protocol, the Onion Router protocol protect clients identity, but it also protects servers identity as well. So on the normal internet, like when I connect to let's say watchguard.com. Uh, my web browser resolves the domain name watchguard.com to an IP address. And now I know the at least logical location of watchguard.com on the internet. Like through routing tables, I know where I can find it. Through IP address ownership, we can figure out where the server is likely hosted or at least figure out like, you know, load balancers in front of it and then subpoena them and go from there to get the server. But with the Onion Router, uh, there, it doesn't resolve to a IP address. Instead, it's basically this kind of meet in the middle protocol where the server and the client both advertise out to intermediaries where the point in the middle where they kind of build this encrypted tunnel between each other doesn't know where the client is, doesn't know any information about it, can't actually see the contents of the uh, connection, and it doesn't know where the server is either. It just knows in order to forward on this packet, I need to send it to this next node. And then that next node only knows where it came from and where it's going next. And so it's this tunnel of onions, basically, where you peel off a layer and all it knows is where to go to get to the next layer kind of thing. So that was a lot of talking. But long story short, either they took down their own infrastructure, which is entirely possible. They caught the heat of law enforcement worldwide and maybe they're just trying to lay low or somehow law enforcement found their infrastructure, which through the Tor protocol is unlikely. Like we've seen incidents of the NSA, for example, setting up enough relay nodes where they could potentially figure out who's communicating with who. Um, but I don't know. What do you think the more likely scenarios? Maybe they, I know we've, didn't, haven't they recently arrested a couple of our evil members and maybe they kind of like gave up on, gave up the information on where this is hosted? 
Yeah, I think that's uh, there. There was a big ransomware gang takedown in Ukraine recently, but they, I think it by big, I think it was six folks, and they they mentioned most of them are still in Russia. I I, I don't think it's a takedown, uh, but uh, at this point, I'm willing to give Kaseya the benefit of the doubt. It would be very hard to unequivocally deny paying ransomware that publicly when you have paid. So. I, I think the hint might be in the Emisoft and maybe they found they found an implementation issue, which is pretty impressive, right? Because lately ransomware has been pretty good at protecting their encryption. And there are still like, so Sodi no Kibi is our evil's name for the ransomware variant. There's still plenty of those floating around everywhere. Maybe this bodes well for other victims of that that would have, you know, similar ransomware payloads, just different uh certificates different encryption keys in it that maybe they're able to crack those could be cool i guess we'll in find either out. way do you know I, we throw shade on sometimes pain ransom not because we don't understand that the world is gray but more because we want this to go away but uh kudos now fully to kaseya because despite throwing shade at pain ransom we were kind of happy that they did something to help their customers and if they did so without pain that makes it even better yeah, it's Happy honestly ending. impressive. Like, yeah, yeah, I have to imagine that if you partnered with a firm like MZSoft or someone else and their job was to basically crack this ransomware, that probably isn't a cheap endeavor. So good on Kaseya for coughing up the cash to go help out some of their victims, even though technically the victims were not their direct customers. So that is one silver lining to this is how they've handled it, even if you do look at the the issues that potentially caused it. Yep. Any company could suffer this. You don't want it to happen. You want to plug the security gaps, but they, they seem to have handled it as well as any company can. Yep. Very impressive and commendable on that part. Um, I'm betting this isn't the end of the saga. Uh, I'm sure at some point someone will give us info on how they got it. I'm willing to bet like the only reason you'd keep it secret is if you had some sort of like you know, back channel in order to obtain this that you didn't want to blow the cover off of, right? Because if you're a company and you say, like, we were able to crack it, you're going to be pretty public about that, I feel like. And like, look at what we did. So by keeping it so secret, like my gut tells me they've got some kind of, you know, rogue way of obtaining what yeah. they need in order to crack it. And I guess the MCSoft could also be a red herring. Maybe it was government help. Who knows? Or like you say, maybe it was just trying to protect their methods to make sure that they're able to help defeat the criminals in the future too. Yep. Which makes sense. You don't want to, I mean, even though this was a massive incident, you want to don't want to blow whatever access you potentially have yeah. by being too loud about it. Bad actors don't want to burn their zero day and ransomware crackers don't want to burn their special security cracking yep exactly uh so moving on now uh last week the white house released a memorandum for improving cybersecurity for critical infrastructure control systems uh the memorandum was uh we if you saw our secplicity post Corey uh via our pr firm did a pretty decent job of putting out his thoughts uh basically it's pretty light on details but it does seem to kind of lay out the goals of the policy and programs going forward i thought Corey's smirking here, thinking, man, this is just, you know, a political no, nothingness. I, I, but... think it, I, I, I think it's commendable, but basically they said, we plan on working on this. They didn't give any real details for policy changes, nor did they give any teeth 
for uh, if you don't do this as an industrial control system, you'll be in trouble. But there were a couple things. But we'll from, get into that. Yeah, there are a couple things from the uh, memorandum I think worth highlighting. So first off, it actually establishes a new initiative, which they call the Industrial Control System Cybersecurity Initiative. And right off the bat, though, they note that it is voluntary. Uh, hopefully, I, I mean, I can't imagine any reason not to join it unless it has like additional liability for an organization. But they said it's a voluntary collaborative effort between federal government and critical infrastructure community, uh, with the goal being to encourage and facilitate technologies and systems that provide threat visibility, indications, detections, and warnings, and facilitate response capabilities. So basically, through this initiative, they'll do some information sharing on threat intelligence. They'll, I don't know, lay out uh, best practices for tools that they might want to set up and to detect and respond to incidents. They've already rolled it out to the electricity subsector. Uh, they're starting now with the gas pipeline subsector. And I would say by rolled it out, it was their, what do they call it? Pilot. The prime pilot. So they've been testing it with some folks in the electricity subsector. Yep. Um, so... Then it goes on to kind of lay the groundwork for expanding a cybersecurity baseline for the industry. Uh, so they listed several federal agencies like the Home Department of Homeland Security that are going to work on developing and issuing cybersecurity performance goals for critical infrastructure. Uh, they listed some dates like Homeland Security only has until September 22nd of this year for like their first run at goals and then one year to the date from the memorandum for cross-sector and sector-specific infrastructure. Um, but the thing that kind of stood out to me in this was they said uh, they will also examine whether additional legal authorities would be beneficial to enhancing cybersecurity of critical infrastructure, which I interpreted that as they're going to look in to see if there are potential regulatory things they might need to change, like liability or what have you, for these nation-critical sectors. What are your thoughts on that? I hope that's the case because I'm. I like the fact that they're working on this. I do think our our federal government should help protect industrial control systems that represent critical infrastructure for our nation. But honestly, to me, this was a whole lot of oh, we're going to work on this, and they already have been. You know, there is something called ICS CERT. There's already intelligence sharing. NIST already has security recommendations for companies like ICS. So. I'm kind of, where's the beef on this? You say you're going to work and, and collaborate with policy, but that seems like something you already have done until I see the policy for what's new and what new benefit there is. Where's the beef? Oh, there's goals for this? Fantastic. What are they? Oh, they don't exist yet. So you're, you're, you're announcing something that you're working on. And my my biggest issue, the the to to me the the two things for something like this succeeding are one the details of the policy, but two the teeth. If ICS businesses are private, you say you don't see any reason why you wouldn't sign up for this. Well, how about time and money, right? A ICS business isn't in the process in the, the the business of spending all kinds of time working with the government. It's in the business of making money by delivering a utility of some sort. Uh, why wouldn't they have spent the time and money to secure before? And you're saying, oh, we'll help you now. Well, oh, thanks. You were 
claiming to help us before <laughs> and and uh, also there's a trust in government thing how will you help us will you get in my way and cause me issues there's no regulation there's no fine there's no liability there's nothing holding them to this so you're representing mark i think an optimistic opinion that people want to be secure and want to work in, in any way they can to do this colonial pipeline might fall into that because they suffered an issue but I'm from, I'm at the point until it is regulated, until there is teeth, I'm not sure it's going to make much difference. So I, I hope your interpretation of the end, you know, I'm glad that they're trying to work voluntary, but maybe there should be regulation about a minimum baseline set of security that industrial control critical systems need to establish. So I don't know. It sounds, there's nothing wrong with this memorandum. I loved all the ideas of what it proposes, but Where's the meat? Where's the beef? Where's the either the teeth and forcing people to do security or the actual details about what any of this new policy is? Because I see ICS policy that's existed from Department of Homeland Security, CISA, ICS CERT, NIST before. So I, I just want more detail. Right now, it just seems like, oh, we want to make this better. Let's wave our magic wand. Yeah, I mean, if only it were that easy. But you're right. I think it will boil down to whether they can add teeth to it or not. Because, like, or have... to to be fair, teeth or carrots. Correct. Yes. It, it's either fines or some some uh, incentive. You can also enforce a regulation by giving tax or monetary or, or other incentives if you do. So add something to this that really gets the ICS community on board beyond just voluntary, because. Let's face it, as much as everyone wants to be as secure, they don't have the time. Voluntary does not seem to often work. And like while, like you said, a lot of these utility districts and stuff are really maintained by very local municipalities, like ne not necessarily even state level, like down to the county or city in some cases, it is critical to our nation's infrastructure. So it makes sense for the federal government to try and help out. So like you said, I like it. I had a good day today. So my cynicism had is not really on right now. That's awesome. So don't worry, I have you covered, brother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hopefully I, I took I'm an right. extra heaping of my cynicism hat. <laughs> Sprinkle some Between cynicism one of, on your Cheerios in the morning. Yum yum. Then they're not Cheerios anymore. They're Grumpios. Grumpios. <laughs> Pop popcorn is Grumpios. <laughs> that sounds like a fantastic cereal. I think we just found what we're selling on uh, April first the next year. We need to sign up Grumpy Cat to be the 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 face of the cereal. Didn't Grumpy Cat pass passed away? away? Yeah, I just Sad. bummed myself out. There's an extra heaping of cynicism now. <laughs> Good things always die. Oh, <laughs> jeez. All right, so moving on now uh, to our main topic for the day. Now you've probably heard us mention. A term. good cynical topic, by the way. Yeah, exactly. You've probably heard us mention, yeah, that is a very good point. The term uh, zero trust quite a few times, especially recently on this podcast, uh, in the context of architecting an organization's network security. And for example, Microsoft just published their own zero trust adoption report, uh, which they found that 76% of organizations are in the process of implementing a zero trust architecture. Now that said, like zero trust can come in a few different forms and flavors. So I figured it was time for us to sit down and talk about what exactly zero trust means at the, the base level, uh, what it means to the industry and what it means when we use this term. And I guess we should kind of start about how the threat landscape has been evolving. 
Like it used to be, you know, you had your office where all your workers were, you had your servers, maybe in a DMZ in the office. But in the past decade, decade and a half, it's been moving quite rapidly in different directions now. Like now we've got, because of the pandemic, helping it along a hybrid workforce where you're no longer just in the office or just out of the office. You're potentially going in and out depending on the day. Users and devices may be inside or outside on any given day. There's a bunch of different devices people may be using, like mobile phones connecting remotely or laptops from connecting remotely or desktops from inside. Some may be more secure than others, depending on what endpoint protection you can run on them. And basically what this boils down to now is it's no longer this strong, secure internal network and this hard shell on the outside protecting it. We need to start looking at it kind of differently. So like with that, Corey, uh, you've got a pretty dang great analogy for zero trust that I'm just going to make you keep saying. So how about you go ahead and give us the, the and By the way, idea. I'm not the first. I've heard this before, but but all the stuff you just brought up is true. But even before all this stuff, when we had a solid headquarters, th there was still an issue there. And that is that our security has always been like a Tootsie Pop. It has that nice hard candy shell, and all our protection is that hard candy shell. But once you get inside, it has a ch soft and chewy center. You can get to anything you want. So a bad guy just has to get past that hard candy shell. And everything you've said, Mark, is just talking about how that that the the hard candy shell is not just in one place anymore. It's all over the place. But the truth is, even when it was just the headquarters, we never we should have adopted zero trust then. Because there are ways that that hard candy shell just takes a few licks to get through. Or if you're smart, you get a zero day that can bite right through it. And then there's no other protection. You get everywhere in the soft, chewy, tootsie pop middle. So zero trust is about, you know, whether you're doing it because of the hybrid workforce or whether you realize that there's some way I can get a little bit of elevated privilege in your network and then it's just a matter of lateral movement. We can't have this kind of flat internal network that lets everybody do everything once they've got past the door. We need to you know, make sure that we always only allow people the least privileged principle to do what they want even on the inside. That's basically what it boils down to, like a cynical yeah. approach of assuming your organization has been breached, either by a hostile actor, a uh, hostile actor targeting your network or by an employee like connecting a compromised device and basically need to enact controls then to help limit their ability to move laterally if you run under the assumption that you've already been breached. Or for simple executives like me, a, a hard lollipop is much better than a Tootsie Pop. Just make it hard candy all the way through. I disagree that that's better though because half the like Stop, you're messing pop. up my analogy with candies. Who cares about the taste of candy? Hard is better than soft inside. And where do those like the bubblegum lollipops fit into this? Uh, they're very Tootsie Pop. They're the same thing. Hard exterior and chewy and soft in the middle. <laughs> so like basically it boils down to... That's a bummer. I like blow pops, but no blow pops. It's now zero trust lollipops that break your teeth. We need jawbreaker lollipops. <laughs> Turn your, your network security into a jawbreaker. That's pretty there good. There we go. I think you just wrote our next blog post. <laughs> so really, like it, it solves a few questions. Like, you know, should your accounting department have network level access to a source code server, for example? Like, yeah, it's probably protected by authentication and they probably don't have a credential that can get into it, but you're still assuming that they are going to behave correctly 
and not that maybe yeah. they have malware on there that's already gained another credential and it's going to use that to access the source code. Why, why have network access at all? Why let them reach, let alone authenticate, any resource that is not part of their daily job? Because That's essentially the idea of zero trust. There's lots of ways to implement it. It can be network level, can be application level. But the point is, even if you have something like authentication, just don't users that are not supposed to be using one work resource, even though you trust them for other things, just shouldn't have any sort of limit as much access as you can to that resource. Because like you'll see that authentication is a very strong part of zero trust. Uh, but when it comes down to individual applications and systems you're accessing, like you can't always rely on it being the single thing that's going to keep a bad guy out. Like great examples of this were those exchange server vulnerabilities a bit ago. You didn't need a username and password. You didn't need a multi-factor authentication token. You just needed network level access to them and you could exploit a server-side request forgery vulnerability to log right in as the server's own root account, basically. Uh, the Kaseya zero-day vulnerabilities were authentication bypasses as well. Didn't matter if you had MFA for that specific application, you could still get in. So it boils down to protecting these applications. Authentication is still a very important part of that, but it means also like network segmentation, what they call a micro perimeter around them as well. Yeah. For for instance, you, you know, one of our things with Kaseya is avoid management interfaces on the internet. Put some sort of access control before it, whether it's a VPN, whether it's access control lists, because as Mark said, one one access bypass violation, and if you expose that service to everyone, everyone can take advantage of it. So why expose everything to everyone? Yep. And then on a traditional network, you may have exposed that internally to anyone on your internal network. But with Zero Trust now, you're not even doing that. Like you segment it off on its own network and only give the users that should have access to it access to it. So what exactly makes up Zero Trust then? Like we've hit on it. Like it basically starts with authentication and identity controls. You need to know who the person is, what the device is before you can make a decision on whether it should have access to it or not, right? Yeah, I think identity is the top thing. Identity of the user or entity, entity being sometimes devices, because the whole, I mean, least privilege is all about giving trusted people enough access to what they should have access to. But in, until you've established that this is someone you know or not, you can't figure out how much access to give them. So number one is everything is based on identity, which means strong authentication, uh, and mapping that identity everywhere they go or it goes is very important. And then next is like, uh, there's a few terms typically thrown around like micro perimeter or uh, like hyper segmentation I've seen. Even hyper, even micro segmentation, nano segmentation I've heard of. Oh boy. What's smaller than nano? Uh, Pika segmentation? Is that, yeah. I don't know. We'll have to look that up and edit it in and post. But <laughs> basically, it, once you've identified these systems you need to protect, it's not just having that flat network and not even just having that you know internal network in DMZ. It means these systems on their own individual networks and then opening up access based off that authentication. And some of the other things that fall into zero trust, like application level threat protect prevention. So again, not just looking at ports and protocols and IP addresses, but looking at the actual application itself. By the way, there's even application level access control. Like there's a lot of uh, zero trust products such as zero trust network access, which end up being clients on your device, but they're paying attention to the applications you use 
and and limiting you know forcing you through certain network controls to get access to them so there's all kinds of ways to skin a cat i, I mean we'll we'll talk more about the technologies in a second but there are new technologies being made to make zero trust easier to deploy but there's ways you could implement this today i mean let, the network segmentation we're talking about you could do that with switches and vlan tagging technically uh, may not be as strong as other you know types of network segmentation but there's there's ways you could do that before zero trust was even a term on people's name uh, or a term in pe security people's minds but uh, there's new technologies that will help to to establish these micro perimeters without tons of configuration so what are some types of technologies then that make up a zero trust network like since authentication is first and foremost mfa feels like it probably plays a big part in that for yeah, strongly identified. It's, it, it, it's the strong part of the strong authentication, right? Obviously, you have authentication, some sort of identity provider, but the MFA just makes it stronger. If everything relies on identity, you want to make sure you really trust that validation when it happens. So MFA for sure. Uh, like you say, segmentation gateways. It could be firewalls like ours. Our firewalls have both multiple physical and logical you know, addresses you can set up so that you can gateway traffic. And once you gateway it, you can have rules for, hey, the person, the people, it, it could be by trust, it could be by department, it could be by all kinds of things, but maybe it's, here's the accounting network. The accounting network can get to other stuff in, in the non-accounting networks, but I'm going to have lots of a, a gateway and access control list for exactly what they can and can't get to. Maybe I'll let them get to the Salesforce database because they need some information from the sales department that they use in accounting. But I, as Mark said, I'm not going to let them get to the engineering network where there's... So that's one way to do it. Yeah. I'm sure you have other examples. And then on top of that, like visibility into east-west traffic too. So behind the perimeter now, instead of just seeing, you know, what's going out to the internet, what's coming in, having good visibility into what's floating around inside your network as well. Because like part of the big, uh, another big chunk of Zero Trust is actual monitoring for suspicious yeah. activity and responding. To and it. how do you do that east-west visibility? I mean, in the cloud, when there's hypervisors and virtualization, there are ways to plug into east-west traffic even without a actual gateway so to speak uh, but that that's when there's some new fancy you know a, a lot of the modern zero trust products out there do have server and endpoint agents uh, you know unless you're literally sniffing on a mirror port of a switch you're not going to see east-west traffic unless you're doing it from a endpoint to endpoint or server you know, unless you're monitoring traffic on the devices themselves but there's a lot of ways to do this but really it all comes down to least privilege principle however you can enforce it yeah I mean it's there's a lot that you can probably do as a administrator with the tools that you already have on your network like if you've already done you know your first steps to basic security you've got a good NGFW or UTM or whatever acronym you want to call it. You've got multi-factor authentication deployed. Like just with that and a VLAN switch, there is a lot you can already get done. Um, like with our appliances, I'm, it's pretty similar with other uh, vendors as well. Like you can use things like single sign-on to identify who is on a device. So the device itself and also the user on it. And then based off that, open up or restrict network access to the different networks. Um, and then through that access apply security services as well so yeah maybe you might allow that network connection to the source code server but you're going to apply 
you know, anti-malware engines on it to look for potential malware payload uploads or intrusion prevention services to look for exploits of vulnerabilities, that kind of thing. Um, and all yep. of that can be done. And I, I, think, a, I think that, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, just Finish. a basic NGFW. Yeah. And I, I think the only difference in doing it with today's technology is it, it, that will take work, of course. I mean, the first work is no matter what technology you use, you have to figure, you know, you're now only letting your own employees do what you want them to do. So you need to figure out what that is. <laughs> you need to establish accounting should only be able to access these corporate services. What are those? And then, of course, you might have help that like maybe one day an accountant tries to do something you didn't think of. Uh, that another employee is able to do because they're in a different department. And so that that's the work, figuring out the policy and what you want trusted users to do and not to do. And of course, uh, you know, if it's not uh, the other magic to new ZTNA technologies are trying to make this easier. You know, it really is a lot of policy work. And if you're doing it with traditional technologies like VLAN tagging, there's a lot of setup you have to do on different things. So how can I make a product that kind of simplifies this for folks? And I think that's where the zero trust technologies are going. So for the, uh, what was that? So for the 24% of people listening to this that haven't started on implementing a zero, zero trust, trust architector, like what are the some of the first steps they should do? I know there's an acronym that gets thrown around, DAS, D-A-A-S. Um, so that means identifying your valuable data, assets, applications, and services that need protecting. And that is basically first and foremost. Uh, like, man, there was a meme floating around the other day that just about every single security researcher I know started retweeting. Uh, basically making a joke that, well, God, man, I'm going to butcher the meme by just explaining it on here. But basically boiling down to you can't set up security until you know exactly what you need to secure is what it comes down to so and that's you, you can't protect what too. you can't see if you don't know what your company cares about you don't know where the keys to the kingdom are and you don't know who needs to get to them well what is the policy you're making in the first place so first step would be identifying what those valuable systems and data and assets are basically and then after that, like, what are some next steps? Uh, I, I mean, then start to segment those. I mean, then once you uh, have identified all the data, you have to prioritize it by business value. Some data will have super high value. Some data will have super low value. So you need to identify that because you need to, you're going to design borders between priority of data. And that's where your segmentation comes in, right? Oh, this is the stuff that, if I lose, my company loses money really quickly. That's the top priority. I'm going to segment that in this way, you know, however that way is. Uh, whereas this other stuff, I can, I'm going to put over here because it's not that value to my to my business. And then once you have those segments, whether you do it by department, where you do it, do it by data type, whether you do it by server type, then you can start to figure out your your uh, authenticated users and who has access. And when you're doing that segmentation, like it's important not to fall into the trap of, oh, I'm going to stick all my valuable stuff on this one network that I'm going to super secure because they might be valuable to different departments that need access and you can split them up even more so that individual departments can only have access to specific servers or resources then instead of just, oh, if you're in engineering, you get access to the super secure network. And if you're in accounting, I guess you can as well, but whatever, no one else can. So that is where that micro segmentation really comes into. And again, it's 
it's easy if you've got the correct networking infrastructure to facilitate that as well. Um, maybe not easy. It is doable with the correct networking infrastructure, uh, even just with today's equipment that's out there. And then you mentioned like next up is applying that authentication to identify not just users, but devices as well. Like, yeah, maybe I want to allow Mark to access the source code server, but only if he's on the company issued laptop. If they're coming in from their cell phone, there's no reason my cell phone should have access to the source code server, for example. So not just users, but, then, but devices as well. Yeah. And that's also where you probably should consider your authentication and how to make it stronger. You know, not only do I can authenticate Mark, anyone that puts up an LDAP or Active Directory server can authenticate Mark, but does your authentication also share what device he's coming from, what geolocation he's coming from, uh, you know, uh, and finally, is it just a password you're using or can you use a password, a biometric, a soft hardware token, a hard hardware token, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, once you have your segments and your data in the right places, however you decide to go, whether it's trust model department, et cetera, now you need to make sure, okay, are my users really validated? And is there any other information I want to gather to help suss out, help monitor for suspicious things that might try to get past authentication? Yeah, like if I'm logged in from my laptop in Seattle, Washington, and suddenly my cell phone logs in from, you know, Phoenix, Arizona, that's a red flag. Yeah, maybe I could be connected to a VPN, but it's still something you'd want to raise an alarm for to investigate. Impossible geo situation unless it's legitimately a vpn or whatever yeah but even then so, like yeah. the, the casualty of potentially raising a flag for someone using a vpn like that is worth the benefit of the additional security you get from catching those ones where it is someone that had stolen my phone and they're trying to log in from there for example and all of this is about making authentication stronger the good news is like if you get the right mfa multi-factor authentication product like authpoint Besides adding the multiple factors, you'll find a lot of them have these extra capabilities like geolocation and other things too. So, you know, this is you know, what, what we're getting at is now that you are picking where your users can go, let's add the MFA type security to those users. Yep. And then once you've identified them and their devices, that's when you start enabling access for those authenticated users and devices. Because again, like, as I always say, the easiest way to secure something is to turn it off and unplug the network cable. But at the end of the day, you do still need to give access to data when it is needed. Um, but that doesn't just mean unrestricted access, that you still want to apply secure, additional security controls to that too. Like even just the low-hanging fruit of looking for malware over a connection can go a long ways towards um, stopping someone from that has access and has a credential from uploading a, a payload directly from one host to another kind of thing. And then backing all that up with monitoring and visibility to look for potential flags for suspicious activity that you might need to investigate or automatically remediate depending on your Yeah, tool. at the very least, once you have this segmentation and limited authentication, you're going to see every time a user that doesn't have privilege for something is trying to access it. And that alone is, is the type of suspicious activity you want to look at just to make sure... It was really Mark and not a malicious process running on his computer. So these are all things that you can do right now, but like 
zero trust it's been around for a bit like the term was coined relatively recently but still more than a few years ago but where do you think it's like going in the future then i guess and you're mr x cto so you've got your finger on the pulse of security technologies out there i know why you say x even though my title's now cso i'm doing all the stuff i did with the old title too uh yeah uh, honestly a lot of it comes down to making zero trust easier especially for that remote hybrid workforce for time's sake i'll give i mean there's a, a couple acronyms you should know one is sassy secure access service edge uh, but the one i want to talk about too is just zero trust network access everyone listening to us probably knows what a vpn is at the highest level zero trust network access is solving the same issue as VPN, remote access to corporate resources. But the two differences is it's not just corporate resources at inside the headquarters perimeter. It's corporate resources everywhere, including the cloud. And it's about the zero trust part. It's about, if you think about a typical VPN, you set it up, you create a policy that pretty much gives your external users full network access to everything on the internal network. Yes, by the way, this is one of those uh, examples where if you do extra policy on your existing VPN device now, you could actually limit VPN quite a bit. You could set up VPN with the policy where Mark only could get to one or two computers that are the services that he needs to access as an employee. But for the most part, VPN is not set up to do that easily. Most people, you open a VPN, now I'm sitting on the company's internal network. ZTNA, this zero trust network access, is basically about doing it in an application by application way where it's very limited access. You're defining almost through a portal similar to our access portal on our Firebox. Here's the only resources this user can get to. And it, it's usually also via a cloud so that it's not just giving you this access to the stuff inside physically your corporate headquarters, but a lot of the cloud. So when it comes down to it, ZTNA is going to be a VPN disruptor. Uh, it's essentially the same use case, but it's the use case make in a way that makes zero trust easier. Yes, you can do it with VPN with a lot of policy and a lot of work. This just makes it kind of easy. Pretty exciting stuff coming forward with those technologies then. But sassy you were going to say well, i was just going to say sassy is is ztna is part of sassy this kind of secure access service edge and it's the it covers some of what you talked about with the hybrid workforce when we talk about employees having access only to what they should that the corporation owns there's also the other part of how companies have changed what the corporation owns sits inside the headquarters it sits inside random branch offices. It sits inside public clouds. It sits inside SaaS services. In other words, it's all over the freaking place. So SASE is about kind of defining the software-defined, secured, but software-defined zero trust perimeter that's focused on a, a cloud orchestrator that can give you access to all those things. So Ultimately, it comes to a lot of cool networking, a lot of things we can do in the cloud, but we're making it easier so that now this user, Mark, whether he's at the office, at a remote office, sitting at home, can make a secure connection to this cloud orchestrator. And whether the asset he's trying to get to is a server sitting in the headquarters or a server sitting in, in Azure 
or a service that we've used like Microsoft 365 in the SaaS, this orchestrator will figure out, does Mark have the first access level that we want to allow him to get there, yes or no, and then gets in there securely, you know, rather than you having to have a special VPN to your headquarters, a special remote VPN to your branch office, another special secure connection to make sure that you're, uh, you know, going through your CASB, a cloud access security broker when researching SaaS. It's really the combination of all these technologies with a focus on zero trust in this new kind of cloud hybrid environment that all businesses work in today. I hope that makes sense. You've really gotten sassy lately. I, I, I'm just a sassy guy. Between cynicism and being sassy, I'm kind of a weird dichotomy. <laughs> but I mean, S sassy cynic. <laughs> If you take nothing else away from this, like there are stuff that you can at least start implementing, start changing now to move towards a zero trust architecture, even if you don't have the uh, the resources to start picking up a lot of these other future tools. Yeah, as as well. we keep saying, frankly, it's really just applying least privilege principle to all your employees. How you do it doesn't matter other than the amount of work it involves and the new technologies make it easier with the way environments are changing but as mark says you could apply a zero trust paradigm to even your old school firewall let alone a next generation one yep and man i don't even know a good ending for that one but basically just do it come on what are you waiting for but don't get sued by nike for saying that <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at X-O-R-R-O -R -R -O underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.